0: Para su I
1: wow.
2: Wanda Wanda Stix, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network, and that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And today is um, Nia, the Kwanzaa principle that uh, means purpose, and uh, yeah, I think um, uh Having a purpose often influences one's choices, and we are so excited to have Sharon. Sharon, how do you pronounce your last name? It's Danoa. Danila, okay, this the way it looks. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Director of Strategic Development for the South Bay Coalition to End Human Trafficking. Um, we're going to talk about some of those choices and how you can help keep women and children safe. Um, from uh, human trafficking because it's a bigger problem than people realize. And January is Sexual Trafficking Awareness Month, and there are a lot of great activities, educational activities and, uh, and panel discussions that are going to be happening that people can find out more about this and how you can intervene and help, and also where, where human trafficking is showing up. Maybe you're not even aware of what's going on, and so really happy that you could join us, Sharon, to talk about this problem and uh, what's planned for, um, in the Bay Area, what's planned for this coming month of January. So welcome this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
3: Um, I'm happy to, yeah, give an overview of um, really what we mean when we're talking about human trafficking. Um what it might look mm-hmm. like, what are some signs you can look for, um and really talk about how we can um, get tools and resources to prevent and intervene in situations of trafficking.
2: Mhm. Yes, yeah, certainly. That but, that sounds like a great place to start and then, you know, we'll weave your bio in there as, you know, as the conversation continues. Great. So um in general when we're talking about human trafficking
3: actually it encom- encompasses quite a bit but at the very core it's really exploitation of human beings for purpose of commercial sex or labor or services and and it's done through um force fraud or coercion which is um a lot of times we see images and so there's you know media images of somebody being taken and so there's this impression that it always has to be force but actually it, usually is um, a lot of coercive factors, and coercion is something that's very psychological. It's a lot harder to see, be a little bit more subtle and take time. Um, Sometimes we um, look at how a trafficker might groom a young person, um, you know, and start to manipulate them. And so trafficking then, the traffickers themselves, uh, the different acts that they might commit in the act for for the purpose of trafficking, it might be the recruiter. Um, It might be somebody who is buying or selling, somebody who's holding that person or harboring them. So you have a lot of different players who can be considered traffickers as well. Um, And so the other big distinction is that when you have a minor, somebody under the age of 18, um, just the Commercial Sex Act is enough to show trafficking. You don't need to show force, fraud, or coercion because – As we know, um, minors—they can't consent to sex, you know. So they can't consent to being sold. Um, And so you don't need to show force, fraud, or coercion. That's implied. Um, What we see a lot nowadays um, is—and you know—I want to clarify that not everybody engaged in commercial sex or the sex industry is a trafficking survivor. Um, But when we're talking about minors, that is trafficking. Um, And often we actually see. Uh, another vulnerable group would be 18- to 25-year-olds, um, where we know their brains are still developing, um, but they might lose some access to resources. This is especially true for um, youth who are, who've who been involved with foster care, or the system. They lose access to resources. They become even more vulnerable, but technically are adults. Um, and sometimes these minors are engaging in what we in, – in sex for survival, but – we should also recognize that that is an exploitive situation. If somebody's exchanging sex for basic needs like housing or food, um, that's an exploitive situation. The person who is engaging and, and receiving sex from that individual is exploiting the situation. Um, and so it's equally important to be able to provide services and resources to those young people. So that's kind of in a nutshell what trafficking encompasses, and it's quite a lot. Today I think we're really focusing on sex trafficking, which again, for minors, um, there's no force, fraud, or coercion. It's just the, the fact that they are in um, involved in commercial sex that's, that's trafficking. Um, and when we're talking about different signs that folks can look for, um, A lot of the red flags that we see can correspond to other red flags, but I'll just kind of put out some of them and and relate them to to trafficking itself. So you might see a change in behavior or attitude. Um, There might be um, a young person who's starting to act more adult, um, more sexualized. Now that could be a red flag for trafficking or, or other forms of abuse as well. Um, you might see a young person who suddenly is carrying um, expensive things like a purse. Um, they might have a older um, male friend who's now around them a lot. Um, that's those are really big red flags as well. Um, and you might see um, situations where a young person is um, truant and and run away, runs away a lot. That's also those are red flags as well. Um, if you and, and these are things also other young people notice. So it might not just be a parent or a guardian. It might be other students um, or their friends who notice these things. So, you know, this, my friend has changed. She's starting to hang around with this older person. He controls. If you see a young person who doesn't seem to be in control of their, um, their time, where they're spending their time, what they're saying, that's also a red flag. So these are just kind of a few different red flags um, that people can look for. It's also worth noting that there's a lot of vulnerabilities. You know, we see um, young people who have had histories of neglect or um, abuse, sexual or physical abuse. They're especially vulnerable. I mentioned um, uh, transitional age youth, those 18 to 25-year-olds foster youth, Homeless youth—they're all those are all huge vulnerabilities, um, they, you know, to trafficking as well. And um, so these are all things that I think we know are vulnerabilities, but trafficking takes it to the next level. Um, we can also talk about a little bit who, um, where, what we can do, right? So if you see a situation of trafficking, we have a national hotline, and that's. Um, 888 um, 373 It's run by the Polaris Project out in D.C. And the good thing about that number is that they have phone numbers to local organizations throughout the U.S. So I know the three people they have on their – I would call it a Rolodex, but we don't call it that anymore. But I know the three people that they would call in Santa Clara County or the individuals they call in Oakland um, because they have very direct point of contact. Um, but you can also look in um, – in each county, usually we have sexual assault responder agencies as well as human trafficking agencies that have 24-hour hotlines. So, um, in Alameda County, we have BayWar, um, and they respond to sexual cases um, of sexual assault. They're available 24 hours a day. So that's the other thing to consider: is um, law enforcement is an option, but often with survivors, um, especially in commercial sex, sometimes services might be um a better lifeline for them something that they would access more readily um, so those those are just a few considerations um when we're talking about trafficking
2: mm-hmm. right yeah i was wondering um and i know you're you're an attorney and uh you've been you know working in this field um for quite a while you facilitate collaborations among over 35 member agencies um, as the director of strategic development for the South Bay Coalition to end human trafficking. In May of 2014, you began facilitating the largest multi-county work group in the Bay Area, No Traffic Ahead, which is unifying efforts in eight counties in order to uh, effectuate collective um, impact across se- sectors. Prior to joining the coalition, you worked with women trafficked into sexual exploitation in Calcutta, India, by aiding their development mm-hmm. through economic empowerment, and you started your own career in crime research, and you worked in, you've worked in crime surveillance and in an emergency psychiatric facility. You hold a master's degree in criminology from the London School of Economics and Political Science and a Juris Doctor from Santa Clara University of Law. You were awarded the 2015 Abolitionist of the Year for Advocacy by the San Francisco Collaborative Against Human Trafficking, uh, the Unsung Hero Award by the County of Santa Clara Valley in 2015, and the South Asian Bar Association's Community Impact Award in 2016. And um, you have put together this really phenomenal um, uh program, you know, uh, that's entitled Trafficking Streams, Strategies to Target Trafficking Where It Happens, and it's going to be January 11th through February 4th this year, and it's going to feature these really phenomenal people, and you could talk about it, as well as the, um, the series of workshops so that people can actually get credit, you know, for continuing education as well oh, yeah. as um, become you know, a lot more conversant on what it means, you know, what human trafficking means uh, in a way that, you know, it's, it's useful. Useful information mm-hmm. is also useful to be able to, you know, join the abolitionist movement. So I was wondering, um, so you were in India for quite a while, and, and India is, is known as one of those places. Some of those folks in India end up here in, in the Bay Area Um, from being Mm -hmm. trafficked. And I was wondering if you could Mm -hmm. tell us sort of how you came to be interested in this this particular type of of advocacy and in work. What draws you to it? Yeah, I mean, I think it
3: actually um, ties in really well to what you said at the start of the show, that today is, um, you know, the Kwanzaa principle of Naya and purpose. And um, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. actually... Mia, yeah, sorry, um, of purpose. And so my my background is I'm, I'm actually mixed-race um, Sikh Punjabi. And um, and I think a lot of what we find is in our career journey, we're always trying to find a connection to things that have strong meaning for us. And so for me, um, working in crime research, I learned a lot about marginalization. I really learned also a lot about how much um, individuals who – are incarcerated um have histories of abuse and um and neglect themselves. Especially true for women who are in prison. It's even higher rates. But um, you know, that I think that experience early on in my career really wanted me to dive deeper into how can we address issues of trauma and marginalization. And so I continued down the path of learning more about how we deal with crime. I worked at a psychiatric hospital which you know, we talk a lot about the need for mental health services, um, but when we actually look at the reality of what's available, it's actually, it's, it's difficult. It's again um, working in a psychiatric hospital. It's a fine line where I worked in admissions, and you'd have patients who clearly needed um, support with mental health, but because they exhibited, you know, somebody who's might be showing signs of aggression. Um, the hospital would divert them to the criminal justice system. Say, so let them, you know, go to jail and, and work it out there because they they felt they didn't have the capacity to take care of somebody like that. So, you know, I started seeing system inadequacies, started seeing more marginalization. Then I learned about trafficking, and trafficking really um, involves the most marginalized individuals of our society. Often we criminalize them. Um, We still criminalize them across the board when we're talking about sex trafficking. You know, victims have been arrested um, as long as we can remember. When we talk about labor trafficking, how often do we criminalize individuals who are, you know, when we talk about look at the agricultural sector, individuals may be criminalized because of immigration status when in reality we should be looking at the employer who's exploiting them. Um, And so... Agriculture is just one example, of course. We have construction industry, we have health and beauty industry, janitorial industry. These are all high risk industries. And so, um my interest then in trafficking I, I really went to India because you're right, we do hear about trafficking happening in India. And so, um, before law school that that's where I went. My family's from Punjab, but I went to Calcutta, India. And Calcutta is An area that's kind of like the Bay Area in a lot of ways because it's a transit, you know, we're a really large um, metropolitan area where there's a lot of people who are coming through the Bay Area at any one point in time, and Calcutta is similar that way. It's near Bangladesh, it's near Nepal, and then it's kind of your gateway to the rest of India, Um, and a lot of young people are trafficked. Um, And so that experience working with young women who, you know, have a lot of the vulnerabilities that we talk about here. Um, but in India, you have fewer support systems. So if you you lose one of your parents, that instability can be enough that the young person's completely homeless now and um, very vulnerable to trafficking. So that experience in itself really um, locked in my purpose, I'd say, of working on trafficking. So I knew after working in Calcutta, that this was something that I was going to do and I was just going to figure out how it worked. So, going to law school, it was, you know, there's no no clear path. I call it my crooked path um of figuring out where where I should sit um and work on um and work and so I did, you know, criminal law, I worked in immigration, I did um private and along that journey, I ended up working with this coalition five hours a week, and I took a position that was five hours a week of just coordinating, um, and I ended up just building more, more and now we're a two-person staff, um, but we all of our projects are connected to another agency, and it's really the right fit for me because, um, because I work with a wide diversity of people. I'm, I'm working with law enforcement, advocates, attorneys. Um, it's been helpful for me to have my legal background. Helping to navigate the system, I think navigating our system in itself it can be so overwhelming, um, and I think um, it helps with me helping to suggest um, protocols or helping to develop protocols in partnership with our agencies as well. Um, so it's I've kind of found the right place for me, but it was never a straight path. It was each step kind of helped build skills. It helps build knowledge base, and it kind of drove me further to purpose, and I think India made that ancestral connection for me that was really important, and um, I see, you know, um, a lot of individuals who do this work here, they also have strong connections to this work um, that um, helps I think it's really important that um, we stay grounded in this work as well
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so with, with COVID-19, um, you know, we think about domestic violence and and now, you know, people, they don't go out to work, a lot of people. So they're kind of like stuck. And then there are a lot of people that are under and unhoused. And I was just wondering what, what the numbers look like um, at the end of 2020. Um, how big is the problem in the Bay Area and in the greater Bay Area? That's a great question. Um, COVID, actually, it's interesting
3: because initially, I think, with COVID, um, one thing we we had hoped was that things would get really quiet. I mean, certainly you would expect that um, seeing street-level commercial sex would would quiet down with shelter-in-place, and initially it did. Um, But what we saw is that it wasn't long before you were seeing young people um, out on the street being sold And more so, a lot of things moved online. So with things like trafficking, it's it's usually market shifts, right? So um, there are a few things to consider. One is seeing how how things are changing. You can see more people are going online. Certainly there are more people going online who um, are not being trafficked and they are selling sexual services. But we also know that there are more people who are actual trafficking survivors who are being sold online as well. The other really big consideration is now we have – with Shelter-in-Place, young people are going to be online even more than before, right? They're completely – they're doing their schooling online. And so in homes where the parents or guardians may not have as much of a knowledge base, there there may be a digital literacy gap where maybe they're not as familiar with all the different um, social media apps or how communication can work online, Um, that there's a vulnerability in those homes because kids are online more. And so that means some of these individuals who are grooming, traffickers who are looking to groom, um, they're online as well, and they can access these young people. So it's really important, I think, for, um, for guardians to look into online safety. You know, there's a number of law enforcement agencies actually have a lot of great tools the FBI, uh, National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. Um, Locally for us, we have um, ICAC, which is the Internet Crimes Against Children Unit. But they have a website that has all these different tools. They provide workshops to parents so they can understand a lot of the risks. And again, it's not necessarily just trafficking, but it's about um, exploitation of young people um, online, vulnerabilities online. And I think that is a really important piece that we're trying to get out a lot nowadays is that, um, you know, it's going to be a lot harder for some of the outside players to see trafficking happening, but within a home, it's really important that those guardians know who, who's your child talking to online. Um, I can give you an example that a law enforcement officer shared um, uh, recently, actually, where they're seeing trends of, of younger people. So, again, this has to do with um, child abuse, but um, of a young person who, you know, a young girl who's eight years old and she has a friend online and they've been chatting for a little while and so she feels comfortable with her and her friend asks her, you know, I'm going shopping with my mother for um, undergarments. What, what's your favorite brand? I don't know what to look for. And so the young eight-year-old girl will tell her, oh, I bought this one. Her friend says, can you just send me a picture of you wearing it so I know what it looks like? And that right there is kinda of how things can start because once that picture is now exchanged, that quote unquote friend, the exploiter, is gonna start saying, I need you to send me more or I'm gonna send this to your friends, I'm gonna show your parents. Um, and so those are really subtle things. Um sometimes that's called self production, sometimes that's called sextortion, um, where someone's really extorting someone and it's not just young people. not just you know, an eight year old, it can be Um, teenagers as well. So those are things that I think are really important that we can, um, as guardians, uh, educate ourselves more about and then have really honest conversations with minors. Now, I also want to point out that it's not an either-or. We've definitely had cases where social media can be a lifeline for young people as well. Uh, There was a recent case um, of a young lady who was abducted and brought up into Santa Clara County in, in San Jose, and she actually reached out for help. Um, I believe it was either over Snapchat or Instagram. She was able to get her friend to call the police, and, and they were able to come find her before, um, before that she was moved again. So, you know, I think sometimes we go to the other extreme of, like, don't touch any social media, but realize what are your actual tools. It's much better for your young, the young people in your life to know how to access resources and tools and to know what some of the risks are. Um, because you know, not knowing how something works can also be a vulnerability. Hmm.
2: Wow, wow. So, um, do you have numbers? Um, like, I don't know how many children there are in the Greater Bay Area. So, I was just wondering, do you have any numbers? Um, like, presently, what you know, how many children yeah. are being trafficked? You know, and is it more this really year than difficult. last year or something like that? Hmm?
3: Yeah, those kind of numbers are actually really hard to come by. When we're talking about prevalency, because human trafficking mm-hmm. is so um, kind of under the radar, you know, we mm-hmm. have different ways of kind of estimating numbers. What we tend to rely on are the actual identifications, and those come through service providers or law enforcement. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I could definitely direct folks to, you know, our website, org, where we have our annual report, and it will show you the different numbers. Um, But that's just Santa Clara County. So for Alameda County, um, heat watch, they tend to have numbers, and that usually reflects a lot of the identifications through law enforcement as well. But it's hard Mm -hmm. to tell. And COVID, you know, I think – everybody's been trying to catch up to adapting with COVID. So we still don't really know the true impact of COVID. We, I can only tell you what some of the indications that we're seeing are. We can see these indications, um, you know, in terms of um, online engagement. We can see these indications uh, on the street. But the hard numbers are not there, um, or I don't have access to the hard numbers as yet. So I think, you know, in time we'll kind of may see um, what the end result is.
2: Mhm mhm, right, yeah, I know um a lot of times um in the past, the problem has been, okay, um you know there's um a rescue, let's say, um or an intervention happens, but there is nowhere for the the young person to go there theres no safe house, so the person, the kid might end up you know in a a carceral setting because all all that there is is the jail or the prison for the child because the child can't go back home because that place wasn't safe, or maybe they didn't have an inside home, so I was wondering, um, is there any money being directed at developing places where the trafficked person can 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 be safe and also start, you know, the the treatment process around, you know, the trauma, and you know, sometimes, you know, other other types of, um, I guess, um, circumstances that happen when one has been trafficked.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, survivor, we've think. been
0: lucky in that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have been lucky in California in that I think our state legislators and our local officials have really started to recognize the importance of um, targeted services um, Mm -hmm. for survivors of trafficking. So at the state level, we have had funding that's dedicated to, through Cal OES, emergency services. And that funding goes to a number of agencies throughout the state, but it's not very many. I believe it might be 10 to 13 agencies receive this funding. A lot of those are sexual assault responder agencies. So these are agencies that have already been providing services to survivors of sexual assault or domestic violence, and they're also Mm -hmm. serving human trafficking survivors. So we do find some um, pockets of of resources that way. But one thing we really know, and this is not surprising in the Bay Area, is that housing is a huge gap. It's a huge gap for for everyone in general, and then on top of that, for individuals who are marginalized or vulnerable, it's an even bigger gap. And there's very few um, housing options or longer-term placement options for survivors of trafficking, particularly when we're talking about younger people, but also for adults as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is um, there has not necessarily been directed government funding for that. A lot of the homes that we have seen have been privately funded, and um, and also people are figuring out what are the best evidence-based practices for these kind of housing settings, you know, because um, survivors of trafficking have complex trauma. It's not just coming in with one, um, you know, one specific issue that can be uh, resolved in a short amount of time, you know, which I don't know many issues that are like that. But it's complex trauma where you might have things through childhood um, and then the actual trafficking itself brings its own layers of complex trauma. It could be, you know, a young person may have a lot of different trauma associated with how they've been treated by various systems if they've been involved in dependency or a criminal justice system. So I think there's a lot of things um, that require uh, traffic, staff that have specialized training. So one challenge that has been in California is that um, we're moving away from group homes, which I think makes a lot of sense because group homes are not healthy settings in many ways for young people. But I don't think we've seen adequate replacement for for that. Um, you know, it would be great if we were able to expand out um, people who could offer a place in their home, so the foster home system, right, if we could... Um, encourage more people to open their home to a young person, and then also offer the training so that they knew that they had resources um, when they're working and um, providing a space to a young person who's suffering complex trauma um, symptoms as well. So I think those are are really big gaps that we see, um, and it's really going to take... Community effort to advocate for that. It can't just be one agency going forward and saying we really need housing. So, when I, the work I try to do with Collective Impact, it really is focused on can we get a collective voice to say, um, let's, this is really what we need for survivors. So, that's one of the projects I'm actually working on now with service providers. Can we collect the information to really show across the Bay Area, this is what we have and this is what we need?
2: Hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um well, we're we're at time but hopefully you have a few more minutes that you can um talk about the um the trafficking streams um, oh, um yes. program we yes. have um developed that looks really really good um January 11th through F- Jan- through February 4th and it's a virtual um training and workshop. So um it's definitely a safe space for people to be able to um to learn about, you know, what's going on with human trafficking and how they can, you know, um, be involved to help in this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, for Human Trafficking Awareness Month, rather than a one-day conference, we're trying to do workshops throughout the month, which hopefully will be more accessible to folks and, um provide really nuanced information. So each week we have a different um, area that we're focusing on. So our first week, January 11th to 15th, we're having um, a press conference on January 11th. And so um, we have some great keynote speakers. You can actually, we're going to be doing it live on Facebook. So you can check out our South Bay Coalition to End Human Trafficking Facebook page to see our opening. Um, But that week we're focusing on labor trafficking in various industries like hotels, Um, restaurant industry. Our second week is focused on uh, commercial sexual exploitation online and street level. And so we have a number of workshops, again, that really look at not just, so uh, this is something I I, I had hoped I wanted to speak about earlier as well, but the strong intersection of race when we're talking about sexual exploitation. We know that there is disproportionate Um, impact on on black women and girls, and that's extremely relevant to when we're talking about how can we um, better serve survivors. So that's going to be a big focus our second week, January 18th to 22nd. Um, The Tuesday workshops are open to anybody, and then we have workshops specific to service providers and law enforcement. Um, our third week really looks at illicit massage establishments and residential brothels. Those tend to disproportionately impact um, Asian women and often Chinese women. And so, again, it's it's really important to know how to best serve survivors and identify them. And that cultural responsiveness is key when we talk about that. Then our last week is on domestic servitude and care home workers. And so if you're interested in our workshops, you can. we have a bit.ly link. So it's bit.ly. Slash HTC 2021, and I believe you might be able to post the um, picture of our flyer as well, but if um, mm-hmm. you know bit.ly flyers, it's, it's just HTC 2021, so Human Trafficking Conference 2021. Um, and so check it out. It's um, all month long. We'll have a closing gala on February 4th. Regina Evans, who's an artist, an extremely powerful survivor leader, is going to be performing um, – on February 4th as well, and she'll be presenting actually January 19th as well. So, um, yeah, definitely check it out. There's a number of things happening around the Bay. San Francisco has a few events as well. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to really dive in and learn more.
2: Right. Um, besides uh, Regina Evans, um, she's at the top of the list of, of persons that are, are speaking um, you have a you have a keynote, um, and then you have the mm-hmm. founder and CEO of Run Away Girl um F
0: Yeah F
2: C. Yeah. Tell us about um some of the other speakers that you have, um, over this um almost one month of um of workshops and it oh, it's four weeks of the uh yeah. human trafficking conference. So we have a number of survivor leaders who are um
3: the real experts that we can um, that we've been able to to bring in um, for a variety of our workshops. So one of our keynote speakers is Carissa Phelps, and she um, is really nationally and internationally known. She runs a um, a group consulting group, runaway girl. They provide a number of trainings. She's been doing a lot of work recently that's looking at um, how are we holding other groups liable for trafficking. So when we talk about trafficking hotels and motels, um, often they they profit from trafficking um, and they knowingly profit. And so, um, not all, you know, there are some who um, are more just complicit, but she's looking more about that kind of liability, accountability. She'll be speaking about that. And then Maggie Crowell, now she was uh, Deputy um, Attorney General, so she was a prosecutor with the Attorney General's office who helped bring down Backpage. And most recently, she was the attorney for survivor who had been incarcerated, and in, I believe um, in L.A. area. I think it might have been Riverside County, and she was able to help um, facilitate her release for Kiana. Mm-hmm. There was a large campaign for survivors. So those are two keynotes on on the on January 11th that are opening. Um, we'll also have I mentioned Regina, Alessandra De Romano. She has an incredible story. She's going to be providing a workshop as well. Savannah Sanders. Um social worker with lived experience as well, who's going to be providing um, workshops so uh, there's a number of individuals who I think really have a lot of in depth um, knowledge and can and provide a lot of perspective on how we can better serve survivors
2: mm-hmm. yeah, and you had already mentioned how in your work you um, you know you work with um, you know uh, legislatures and as well as you know, law enforcement, and at your press conference, you um, you have some of those folks that are going to be a part of the um, the discussion. Um, Santa Clara County Supervisor Cindy Chavez, um, California Assembly Member um, Ash Kalra, and mm-hmm. Santa Clara County District Attorney Jeffrey F. Rosen. Um, yeah, yeah.
3: These have all been really great supporters and advocates for, um, like I was saying, at the local level and then at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll they'll be speaking on January 11th as well. Um, we hope, hoping to get some city council members as well from San Jose who've been really, um, again, big advocates. Looking at sexual assault, looking at how are we looking, um, ensuring trafficking survivors are linked up to services. So, really, I think important to also hear from our elected officials who really have taken on this issue head on.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then for the um uh the general admission track, you have $40 with for 9 hours. And then for the professional track, you've got $60 with 13 and a half hours. And um mm-hmm. what about um is there anything like any in kind or something um any scholarships that people who might not have the forty dollars or the sixty dollars who are interested in the um you know taking the uh the training or doing these doing yeah. one of the other tracks.
3: So we offer um fifty percent discounts to students and then survivors uh can also reach out for scholarships. If there is a hardship I would just say go ahead and email us and we'll see what we can do. Um, in terms of like the, the cost for the events, the $40 ticket for general public, all of our funds are really going to support survivors. So all the survivor speakers, we want to make sure that we really are um, honoring their time and paying them. And so it also goes to our, so it goes to pay for the, their, those speakers as well as ensuring that we have a direct client assistance fund. So this is kind of our main fundraiser for the year where um, whenever there's a need for a hotel room or if a survivor um, is in a situation they need food or like in an operation we need to uh, provide food, we can pull from this direct client assistance fund that is accessible to a number of our agencies. So um, so hopefully folks will also feel like the, the money is going to a place where it's directly serving survivors because that's Kind of a, one of our main goals from our January events, but certainly if there are hardships, I would say reach out to us. You can find information also on our Eventbrite page, which you can get through that um, that link, and um, and we'll see what we can do.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great! That's really great. Um, let's see, I was wondering if if there was anything like if a person was interested in learning more about uh, human trafficking, um, could you recommend a book or something that they could read or Oh um I mean there's a number of books that have been written by survivors. Holly Gibbs has a
3: great book. Krista Phelps actually Runaway Girl is a book um that you know oh. that's uh really helps paint the picture and she was trafficked here in Central Valley so it's definitely very relevant um to all of mm-hmm. us. You there's a number of documentaries out there as well. California's Forgotten Children is a really good documentary. Um, and a lot of websites I mentioned. Polaris Project. You can look at our South Bay and website. Missy is a local organization. They have information on their website. Yeah, there's de- definitely a number of places we can go to for more information. I'm trying to think of other um, books that um, Gems is. Um, Rachel Lloyd. She's a survivor out in um, on the East Coast, and she runs the organization Gems. G E M S. She's also written a book that helps provide a really in-depth perspective of trafficking, sex trafficking specifically.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. That's really great. And um, lastly, I was wondering, I went to a play once. It was at the um, Patton College back when it was um, a uh, face-to- had face-to-face class, I think it's online now. And um, someone was saying that that there's a, particular color light bulb that you could put on your porch, and a person would know that this is a safe house for them. And I was wondering, I don't oh. remember what kind of, what color light bulb it was. I don't remember. Would you happen to know um, about that? Because it was, it was, uh, it was like a campaign, and people were supposed to put this like color light bulbs in there on their porches, you know, as opposed to just a, a white light, and and then if someone was in distress, they would know that they could come to your door and you could help them or try to help them, direct them to services. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I don't think I
3: have, um, I feel like it sounds familiar, but I haven't seen that being used around, around our area, um, but okay. certainly I think organizations are um, really looking at being creative of providing safe lights. So um, mm-hmm. It'd be something that'd be great to explore to see if we can create more movement in our communities. That you know, if like you have a blue light or something on mm-hmm. your porch, that it would be seen as a safe house. But I I haven't heard about that locally, but I think it's um, a really interesting thing to explore.
2: Okay, mm-hmm. well if you hear about it, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I will do. <laughs> Okay. Uh, was there anything that um, you didn't get a chance to talk about, um, you know, in sort of giving us an overview of human trafficking and, you know, in the series of, of workshops and conversations to heighten awareness, mm-hmm. you know, in the greater Bay Area about what's happening and what's being done and how people can get involved? I mean, just the, the
3: one thing I always hope to leave folks with is that um, – Certainly, you know, learning more about the issue is one thing that you can do in your personal life, but there's so much room to impact this issue no matter what you do, no matter what your profession is, if you're an engineer. Uh, for a while, I used to always ask if there was a dentist in the room because a lot of times survivors haven't seen a dentist in years, and you don't think, well, that would be a great thing to be able to provide um service to survivors with something like that. But everybody has the capacity to do something on this issue. Um, there's no one path. I definitely am somebody that shows, that, you know, is a crooked path for me to find what I should be doing and here I am. But everybody can figure out within their own sphere. You have your own communities that you can help educate and provide resources to. You have your own circle that you can influence and you have your own skill sets that you can offer. And so I really encourage folks to, just think creatively about how you can impact the issue because there
2: is so much that can be done. Okay. All righty. Well, I will see you um, at some, if not all, of these workshops. Uh, I think I might do the uh, the second track because it all looks yeah. really, really um, enlightening. You've really done a great mm-hmm. job in pulling all this together. And, um, yeah, I'd like to know more about just sort of what the problem is and and how it's you know how it it's being addressed, and I was just thinking, um, uh, it's you know sometimes it's really hard for parents to get help, and and the way that the laws are situated, um, if the uh, traffic child becomes a a part you know gets part comes gets becomes a part of the legal system in that you know they are charged with you know, with something in in the um uh in the process of being trafficked, like maybe they break a law. Um, but they're underage. From what I understand the court um has the parent signed over custody sign over custody to the court so that the court can act mm-hmm. as the child's guardian, um, to facilitate Services, you know, around, um, uh, what is it, psychological and other types of services to help the child um, get better. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, why why does the parent have to turn the child over to the court if the parent says, okay, um, I'm going to give you permission to, to take care of my child, let's say if the child had to end up you know, being in a residential program. but well, why yeah. can't the parents keep probably, custody? Yeah. That's a good, I
3: think I'd probably have to learn more about the situation and it may be a more specialized mm-hmm. answer, but I, I do know that with, um, with the way that the laws are written now, um, mm-hmm. for a lot of trafficking survivors, young people who are being trafficked, um, sometimes there's neglect in the home, and if The dependency system shows that the neglect, there is neglect, then they can take jurisdiction over the child um, to be able to provide them services. So that's kind of a general answer to something that's a specific question. Um, But I would Mm -hmm. say that if there are parents that are starting to see red flags, um, that there are services that could help before. Um, Sometimes, you know, our systems are only. Only respond when things get really bad, and so I would encourage folks to reach out to service providers um, or even call in the national hotline to find out who are your local service providers, um, so that you can intervene sooner. Right? We don't want to wait till the things are so bad that you have to call law enforcement or that child welfare has to be involved. Um, it's so much better if families can access tools before then to help um, divert or intervene um, and prevent. Right. So um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that totally answered your question, but, it's a, you know, I think I'd probably need yeah. more information for that kind of um, question. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, no problem. We could talk offline. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got more information. <laughs> <laughs> got um, it. Yeah. Sure. Well, thank you again so much, um, you know, for coming on. The air to talk about, you know, this big issue, this big problem that doesn't seem to be getting the kind of um, uh, attention that I would think it needs to get because these are our, our children. These are our babies, you know, being exploited. Um, and That's it just cool. keeps on happening. I remember when the uh, um, uh, Nancy O'Malley became um, the, uh, the city... Uh, what is it, the County of Alameda, um, a district attorney. district attorney. And and she was like, that was her big thing, because that's where I, I'm trying to say, I don't know if I met Regina there or she told me about it, but we had this big thing around Lake Merritt, and we lit candles, and it was really, really beautiful. We had survivors were speaking. This was many years ago. And it took place, it was like on Easter weekend. So, you know, really sort of like centered in a real sort of, Spiritual time, right um mm-hmm. and it was a long time ago, like she had just gotten in the office, and I don't know which 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 um <laughs> which cycle she's on presently. I don't know how many times she's been in this office, you know, like been reelected and reelected mm-hmm. and reelected, and mm-hmm. Oakland is still the epicenter, right,
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the hard thing. This is one thing I didn't really bring up, but it's a really important part of the conversation. Is um, Nancy O'Malley's done tremendous work, actually statewide. She's really shifted the tide in so many prosecu in so many district attorney's offices of how they look at trafficking, and should really mm-hmm. be commended for um, how much work she's done. I mean, before Nancy O'Malley, it was so common for prosecutors to criminalize a 13-year-old for. For they call it prostitution, right I mean and and it's absurd that a child could be charged with something like that, but um now luckily the tide has shifted, and people recognize these these minors are victims and survivors so um the other thing I was going to say is that uh you know she's done tremendous work on this issue, but there there's a lot to be said for who's who's buying sex you know and there was um some research that was done in Oakland that a lot of the individuals who are coming to buy sex in Oakland are actually not from Oakland they're coming from you know San Francisco they're coming from around the bay area and um that's a big conversation of you know how we look at the issue of um commercial sex and um and it's hard because there's a number of people who say well I'm I'm not a trafficking survivor and I sell sex but they're you no, know, we know that the, in Oakland we have a number of survivors who are being sold, and there there's somebody buying. There's somebody who is. I mean, that's you're raping a minor, right? Um, that's a much harder conversation that um, does need to be addressed. So, um, I think that's the hard part. In California, our law we don't. Um, it's a misdemeanor actually buying sex. So, so for for her role, she's limited in how we can punish some of these buyers. Her office certainly tries to get buyers when they can um, and hold them accountable for trying to purchase a minor, but, but it's somewhere that we need to do a lot of work and really look at, at how we treat that issue.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
0: Ah, okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Sorry. I meant to leave us on a good note. I was like, but now I went back down to think <laughs> about how difficult things are. But again, you know, I think everybody can do something really impactful on this issue. And at the end of the day, when you hear a lot of survivor leaders speak, um, the sheer resilience that you you see, um, I'm just always humbled by a lot of the work that we see um, survivor leaders doing. So I, I would just say, you know, that's a good place to start um, and really be inspired and, and motivated and, um, yeah, um, and see how you can also serve.
2: Right yeah yeah well regina Regina really inspires me <laughs> mhm um, absolutely yeah. like, she is just like this is this is her mission this is what she does and uh, mm-hmm. I've interviewed her lots of times and i i have um a clip from when she um uh did her fifty two letters at Ubuntu um last year, so I was gonna yeah. play that between our conversation and the next one.
0: <laughs> mhm oh that'd
2: be great. Yeah. yeah, since I mean, Regina is going to be one of the uh, speakers, um, you know, at this conference.
3: Yeah, and our closing gala. So, I mean, she's extremely powerful.
2: That would mm-hmm. be great. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, cool. Well, you have a good rest of uh, the the day, you know, with uh, you know Nia. <laughs> <laughs> As a yes, principle, absolutely. you're working through. Yeah. yeah, purpose and tomorrow is kaumba creativity, and then followed by on the first, imani or faith. So just one connected to another. You know, they all. Absolutely. You know, there's a synergy there.
3: Absolutely, that's great. Thank you for having mm-hmm. me and um, spending so much time um, talking about this issue. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh. Certainly, um, you know, thank you for all of your service and I look forward to staying in touch. And if there's, you know, another time you'd like to talk about something else that's, um, you know, um, of importance to our community to know and that you need more support on, you know, please feel free to let me know, Um, you know, I'm at your service. Thank you so much. All right. You take good care. You too. Thank you so much, Rhonda. Bye-bye. Sure. Peace and blessings. Bye-bye.
5: My name is Regina Evans and we are sitting here in my beautiful boutique in downtown Oakland called Regina's Door. Uh, Regina's Door is a vintage boutique which is a social enterprise which supports young survivors of um, sex trafficking. It is a creative arts healing zone which is probably one of my most favorite places to be in this world. I've been working as an abolitionist since 2007 here in Oakland and so I use my business skills to support my work and the other thing that I do is I use my skills as a theater professional and as such I have a play called 52 Letters um, which I began to write in 2010 and performed it for the first time in 2013 and now it will be going on stage Um, August 2nd and opening August 4th at Ubuntu, and so we hope you all will come. What is 52 Letters? 52 Letters is probably a ball of fire, a poetic ball of fire. It is my personal prayer to the community to rise up and consider the lives of girls and boys as young as 12, 14, 15 that are in our city of Oakland being raped for sale. Um, these are our babies and our children. And so it's my personal wake-up call and prayer for the community to be activated to love on them, to hope for them, to hold their hands, to believe in them, to believe in the best for them, to believe that life has great dreams and beauty for them. And so it's a prayer of activation. Um, and also a ceremony of healing for them and for us. And, um, it does hold waves of trauma and grief. And so I always ask that people consider their hearts when they come to the performance. Um, just just consider and um, know that you're in community when you were in a performance um, that you're not alone Um, but it's an important piece and I I get asked a lot about the fire of it so I just want to address that a bit I remember the first time I performed it a man came up to me afterwards and said did you write all of that I said I did and he said it's almost too much and I said well you got an hour of what a 14-year-old goes through 24-7. You just got a snapshot of their life. And I do understand that things can be hard on us, but literally these are 14-year-olds being raped multiple times a day. And so we need to know that that's going on with our children. We need to know that, and we need to know it in a way that we hold it in our soul Mm -hmm. enough so that we actually are activated to do something. And... Um, so that's how I spend my life in theater and in my store and I hope that you will join us and join me and join these youth who are beautiful reflections of your own hope for yourself and of their hope for, for you right and just lift them up in prayer Listen up in prayer. They're your babies, too. Thank you.
2: Breed, Love, um, singing, breathe. And and before that, we heard um, Regina Evans talking about her 52 Letters play and sort of where the topic comes from, just sort of hitting us right in our hearts. (sighs) We think about human trafficking and our babies. Yes. So we're We're waiting for our next guest to join us and uh, I'm going to play something else. I think I'm going to... I really like... Um, <laughs> um, uh, Nana Sula. Um, I really like her, her latest uh, project. I really like humanity. So I'm going to play humanity right now. And um, actually, um, I want to play another one of hers. I, I like humanity, but um, let me see. I have her listed in a couple of different ways. And now my computer is not cooperating. Ah, let's see. Look her up in another direction. And you can find all of her work on her website, um, Nana Sula, or Sula Spirit, I should say. I think that's how she has it listed. Sula Spirit. Let's see, I think um, I really like the Ancient Mothers. I really like that one. So I'm going to play that and uh, give our our guest that's going to be joining us a, a little ring. Guest is in the studio. Um, uh, Mayor Janelle Gary. Good morning. How are you?
6: Good morning. I am doing well. How are you? This beautiful day.
2: Oh, I'm fine. Oh, is it a pretty day? I I haven't been out yet. <laughs>
6: hey, well, look. When you're up and able to breathe, it's a beautiful day. So. I I I certainly agree day. with that.
2: Yeah, that was so cool, you know, um, seeing you pop in yesterday evening for the BWAPA's, um year-end celebration. That was nice Here you say a few words. Like, oh. oh, that's what she looks like. <laughs> <That> <laughs> no, I didn't nice. know you were on there. Yeah, I had a conflict, and so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I
6: was able to pop in. I think someone texted me and said, hey, you're being honored. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so,
2: yeah, so yeah, that so was perfect timing, yeah. Right, I'm really happy that yeah. you came as well. Um, yeah, I um uh, I, I uh, sent you a in what do you call it, um a mess a private message, but you probably didn't see it because you were in two meetings. <laughs> right. This,
0: right.
2: That was yeah. crazy. Mhm. Yeah. So, um I was looking on, on the website for um the city of Albany and um it says that you moved to the Bay Area in two thousand eight And uh, with your daughter, and you've worked in claims management for over more than 18 years, including 10 years of public public uh, entity litigation experience. So, are you an attorney?
6: No, I'm not. I've just been in claims for, like I said, like you said, over 18 years. Um, Mm -hmm. And with public entities, we tend to um, again make recommendations on the city's behalf. Uh, we have to appear in front of a judge to, um, if there's a small claims case, um, so we'll appear in front of the judge. But we work, I work mm-hmm. closely with attorneys um, with assisting them to navigate through how we can protect the city's best interests. So that's basically what I do, but not an attorney.
5: Okay, yeah.
2: And an addition uh, says um, that. You are an educator and a mentor who has worked with youth from preschoolers to high school seniors, and your passion for outreach combined with your leadership skills allowed you to develop creative and effective solutions for civic problems, and you find joy in building relationships and bringing unity to your community. And and I was wondering, uh, because it seems like all these women mayors and other um, uh, legislators, have come through Emerge California and you are an Emerge California right. alum as well um, as a Regas University Masters in Business Administration. Uh, you've got Colorado Christian University, BS degree in organizational human resource management, a certificate in project management, at community college in Aurora, uh, associate of arts degree in criminal justice. Oh, so you do have some down there. And you're a certified paralegal. <laughs> so, um, uh, and your occupation is Claims Examiner Risk Management. So why did you want to be mayor of Albany, California? <laughs>
6: so I wouldn't I would say I wanted to be mayor. Um, I knew that oh. one day I would run for mayor. I didn't know what what city that would be. Um, that mm-hmm. has been kind of like um, one of my goals in life, Um like I said, I didn't, I would say I didn't choose Albany, you know, per se, you know, because I Mm -hmm. moved originally from Texas. I was born, raised in Texas, moved out of my uh, mother's home when I was 19, 20 years old. And so I just Mm kind of navigated through, you know, from Texas to Colorado and now here in the Bay Area. And interesting enough, um, I was working with the city of Albany through one of the JPAs um, in the Bay Area. And we moved here. And so mm-hmm. when I moved to Albany, I immediately got to work, you know, as best as I could without being a co- having a conflict in um, the relationship that I had with my professional career. And uh, mm-hmm. once I started working, I started to, you know, know the city ins and outs. And I said, you know what, I'm going to run for city council. Because I think it's time, and absolutely it was time. Um, this mayor appointee came out of the blue, at least for me. Because you know, when you're when you're going through different um, career paths, you well, you know, you start off at a certain area and then you start to build upon that. And so um, I guess you know it, it was time to do it. And so I'm excited about doing it, and I know that um, the city and the residents are excited as well. So. Mm-hmm. It just happened that way, I guess. <laughs> That's how life does. It throws you these these curveballs, and it's like, okay, you're gonna either, you know, sink or swim, and you know, and you just do the best that you can with with the information and tools you have. So, hmm, yeah,
2: yeah. So talk about um, your, you know, preparation for for the position because, like I mentioned, you know, emerge is a really wonderful organization, you know, for for grooming. Um, uh, women for, um, for leadership in government. Uh, I mean, it's just like um, when you look at all the women who are, you know, who are like mayor here or you know senator there. A lot of them have come through uh, through Emerge California if they're here. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little absolutely. bit about yeah that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
6: mean, I knew about Emerge back in. 2017, I would say a friend of mine who's an attorney, she knew that I was, you know, looking to get into the political arena and she was just like, Oh, have you heard of Emerge? And I was like, No. And so I did the research on it and I applied then and I didn't get accepted. And again, that was simple because it wasn't time, you know? And so, um, like I said, I felt it was time to do it again and I didn't give up. And um, I would say that merge prepared me for the run it prepared me to to stand up and be that leader right um, to speak to the community the thing that I like the most about them is that when we would go into our breakout sessions to um, learn more about what we need to do as leaders you know they are big on telling the story telling your story you know you have to be relatable to people and I and I think that was one of the key things that helped me. In my, um, in my campaign was that I was able to understand what it meant to be homeless, right? I was able to understand what it is to be a renter, you know, business owner, things like that, and I and I really listened to the voice of the community, and so with some of the tools that, you know, Emerge provided and my life experiences, it was so instrumental for my campaign and, you know, the position I'm in, so... So absolutely, I would encourage women to, you know, do their research and um, to seek emerge for, for guidance and training to get into the political arena.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah. So, um, I guess you get sworn in at the beginning of the year. Is that how it works?
6: No, I no, absolutely not. I I was sworn in December fourteenth, and I'm already working. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay cuz I know I know last week you were delivering toys to uh constituents. Right, right. <laughs>
6: exactly. So yeah, I started December 14th was. It was mm, handed okay. to me and I began to work and and I've been working in that position since
2: then. Mm, mhm. So, um are you enjoying yourself?
6: I am. I mean, just learning and I think the public emails are very interesting because you know you do get you know some interesting emails about the city and people all have you know different ideas and suggestions to help the city grow. So just being able to you know be be, be in contact with the, the citizens and residents and address issues as they as they come. You know I, I've been in management and so it's also it's a different arena, right? You're managing, you're helping mm-hmm. with the city. Management is management. People want to know that they've been heard, right? And for me, right. customer service is, like, number one. So they will get a response um, if I have the answer, and if I don't have the answer, they will get a response because that's how I um, I pretty much my leadership style is.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Right, yeah.
2: Yeah, my friend, um, Makita um, uh, Sandra Cooper-Mayfield, you know, told me that her friend was now the mayor, <laughs> <laughs> of Albany and wow. uh, yeah, yeah, hmm And so I was wondering, um, and and I told you, um, you know, in an email, you know, that that I work for the, um, the Berkeley Albany Y uh, at you know one of their kids clubs, and uh, just you know really really like the little city, um, you know between, um, El Cerrito and Berkeley, you know it has a nice personality. And uh, I was wondering if you could um, maybe tell us a little bit about about your plans for the city. But I also noticed um, in your community service that, um, I don't know what Blue Glove Crew is, but the Solano Avenue Association, I, I know that association, this, it, Solano Avenue is a really great association. And then the Bay Area Crisis Nursery in Concord, you're a, vol- mm-hmm. you're a volunteer there. And the Women's Crisis Center, you were a volunteer in Denver and then the Open Door Youth Gang Alternatives. You were a volunteer there in Denver, so I was wondering, if you could tell us a little bit of that story that you know convinced your constituents that you were the woman, you know, for the position. So
6: the Blue Love Crew was and um, is a um, you know a group of residents and our volunteers. And mm-hmm. basically Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at around, you know, 8 o'clock, we walk around the city and we pick up trash. And oh. that is key to keep, especially during COVID, right, to keep our city clean. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, we walk from, you know, Solano Ave, up and down Solano Ave to Berkeley. But we also work mm-hmm. a walk on San Pablo into El Cerrito, picking up trash um, and just, you know, Getting a little exercise, I would say. But basically, the goal is to make sure that our streets are kept clean. It also
4: gives
0: us
6: a, an opportunity to look at some of the, you know, possible defects that are in the city or, you know, areas that need to be improved that can be documented and possibly sent to the public works department for, you know, our resident safety. So, we kind of have a toolful um, agenda. But uh, for me, I was able to connect with the organizers of the group and establish relationships with them and learn more about the city prior to my run. So, mm-hmm. um, again, that was a good avenue. As far as the um, I think like the Bay Area Crisis Nursery, that was when I lived in Walnut Creek. Um, mm-hmm. I did some, um, some volunteering at that nursery because it was simply a place where women or men single parents or families took their children to be cared for and so anyone that knows me I do have a strong um, passion and heart for uh, children and seniors and so um, I found that that nursery to be very soothing Um, getting to know the kids um, the kids always having someone that you know they could hug on we would have to bathe them, fix them breakfast, feed them played with them. I mean, it was just a really good um, organization, and I love it. I miss it um, because it gave me um, a sense of understanding that there's more than me that that's in this world, right? there's so many kids and, and people that could benefit from what I bring to the table, and so that's why, um, for me, I try to get into areas where I can volunteer and you know, reach back and pull up those by using what I have and to help them in any way. And that's with the youth alternative in Colorado. I mentored um, eighth grade young girls in teaching them, you know, the value of themselves, um, taking care of themselves, uh, trying to shape them as model women so as they grow up through life, they would know how to carry themselves as young girls. Um, and so basically, um, the same thing with the women crisis, reaching out to, to women that have been in um, situations that they've either, you know, had a challenge to get out of or, you know, needed to have that person that could be relatable to their um, domestic violence um, issues as well. So all of those, the different organizations, again, prepared me for this position now.
2: To um, be able to understand and be relatable to the residents in Albany. hmm Yeah. Do Do mayors have, um, you know, sort of a hundred days, um, the first hundred days, kind of um, forecast? Like, you know, do you have a list of 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 um, I don't know items that you're going to uh, address first, second, third? Since you know you're not new to the city.
6: Right. So I don't know about mayors, if they do, but my goal is to have, you know, the first 90 days of things to accomplish. And I've already started uh, reaching out on the federal level to get testing for COVID in our area. Um, we mm. have uh, underserved communities that um, is now doing, you know, food distribution, and the funding has um has been removed, and so I'm trying to uh, reach out to the county and the federal to see how we can help our students. And so, mm-hmm. um, again, December 14th, I just, you know, hit the road running, found the needs and figured out, I'm still trying to navigate who I need to speak with, who I can contact in order to get assistance to help our um, our city in these areas. So, um, whether it's from, you know, identifying, you know, the smallest the low-hanging fruit right? Making sure mm-hmm. I can get out, those issues um, done within the first ninety days to the long term over the four years. Remember, I have only a year for the most part in this position. Unless you know my constituents say if you're doing a good job, we'll want you to continue. So
2: mm-hmm.
6: that's the plan. <laughs>
2: right, right, yeah.
6: How does your How does your
2: daughter um, uh, How does she feel about her mom being there? Yeah.
6: Um, she's super excited. I mean, for the first week she showed everyone at work. She told the people in the grocery store. Um, so I, I uh, appreciate her support and her um, excitement about this position um, that I'm in. And so, um, yeah. So hopefully, you know, as always, my goal was to uh, be that model for her. So in her career mm-hmm. path, that she'll be able to strive for excellence as well. So.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Nice, nice Yeah, wow, that's so wonderful And um, when we spoke earlier We were talking about how many How many women have You know, sort of stepped up to these Wonderful um, Political offices I mean, it's just like The world has changed Dramatically exactly. You know, first there weren't exactly. a lot of women And now there are a lot of women And these are, you know, women you know, African American, you know, Latina, you know, uh, mm-hmm. South Asian. I mean, like, yeah.
6: Yeah, I think the timing is now. I think, um, you know, like you said, some of, some women are mothers. Uh, some people mm-hmm. see some women see that their community could utilize their leadership. And, you know, you could sit back and complain about what government is not doing, or you can step up and say, you know what, let my voice be heard. And that's what I ran on. You know, I'm this new voice um, for the people, and um, I'm going to be that champion for those who are just sitting back, you know, not actively or can't actively, you know, regurgitate what they would like to see in their city. And so, you know, at, at some point, I think most of the women that are in this arena are just basically said, why not me? Why not now? And they were able to do it and get it done.
2: hmm Right. Do you have, um, you know, sort of any role models that um, you are, that you sort of look to? Because um, I, you know, you're... You're on a lot of advisory, um, you know, bodies and you know, committees. Um, you're you're um, you're very busy.
4: <laughs>
1: very busy.
6: <laughs> Outside of working a full-time job, I mean, I would say that you know, I'm very busy. Um, as far as role models within, you know, the federal government, um, you know, absolutely, Barbara Lee, Sheila Jackson Lee. She's a representative from Texas. Uh, When I was growing up in Texas, um, we had a governor named Ann Richardson, and she was the best. I mean, she was the only woman governor in my lifetime that I remember. But um, her passion and her drive for the people of Texas was simply amazing. So um, she was definitely uh, a number one champion for me in my uh, younger years. But as I continue to navigate, you know, I look at different – things that are going on in the Bay Area, but also in other countries and how they've been able to, you know, make this curve in COVID numbers and continue to Mm service their people. The president in Rwanda, right, is doing a phenomenal job. Um, And and of course, the women leaders in Australia, New Zealand, how they were able to combat this and really bring forth um, the necessary services and resources they needed in their country. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I'm, I'm, I'm observing. I'm taking notes, and hopefully, uh, with the right plan, we will be able to do the same in our in our city. Mm,
2: hmm Right. Right. Yeah. Well, gosh, um, are you um, speaking to any of your constituents um, in the uh, in the Bay Area? Because you know there are quite a few women women leaders. You know, you mentioned Barbara Lee, but I'm thinking about, um, you know, mayors uh, and and councilpersons um, newly elected in the Bay Area. Are you all? Um, do you all get together? Like, do you have meetings? Like any kind of caucuses? Uh, the
6: we're um... we're trying to form that as you speak. I mean, um, there's one um, city council person who was mayor in East Palo Alto. Um, she was phenomenal. I mean, my, my first week of uh, being a mayor and then the following week I had a full-blown agenda and I had to run that meeting. She was very inspirational um, in trying to help me to understand what I needed to do, you know, during this meeting, how to run the meeting. And so, um, yes, yeah, grateful for the mayors that are willing to, you know, kind of give you that, that um, extra push you need and also guidance. Um, I have mm, a young lady mm-hmm. that's uh, newly elected in Piedmont, and we've committed, yeah. you know, let's, let's try to, to connect every month. So we, you know, just sharing ideas, different things that's working in their city, what's not working, and how we can come together. So uh, we're building mm-hmm. this network of elected officials that we can just kind of, you know, speak on a platform where we can kind of help each other because, you know, we're all serving in some capacity Within the Bay Area, so it would be great if, if if we could
2: build a caucus, like you said, it would be an awesome thing. Right? Yeah, because you know, um, powerful Black women, powerful women. It's just ah, it's like a breath of like, fresh air. Um, you know, right. just seeing you all step up because it really, really, it's really different than than what what um, what we were looking at prior to your your being in office. And uh, and I was wondering, um, you know, we're thinking about the Kwanzaa principle today, um, you know, Nia or purpose. I was wondering if you, if you have any reflections on, on that principle. And then tomorrow is creativity uh, and then, of course, Friday is Imani or faith.
6: You know, I think my purpose is truly what I'm doing is to serve. Uh, you know, I, I would go back until when I was in high school and when – I discovered my purpose. I rejected it, right? You know, as a teenager, it was like, I absolutely don't want to do this, um, and I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, you have that mindset that that I'm not going to serve, I'm not going to do this, and it was brought to me at a young age. But as I traveled through different, you know, again, cities, um, I met uh, a plethora of people, I truly knew in my early 30s that my purpose is to serve. My purpose is to work with the underserved people in the community. And so I'm walking in my purpose right now, and I'm excited about it. I, I can't wait mm-hmm. to see what the next steps are going to be. Um, I, I, I I have so many creative ideas that sometimes I, it's hard to suppress them because you don't want to give too much at, mm-hmm. at any given moment, right? But It's a balancing act right now with your purpose and the creativity and definitely your faith, you know. In government, people tend to, you know, suppress that because of how people would perceive them. But, you know, with me, um, I give all praises to the Most High God because he's the reason why I'm here and he's the reason why I'm, I'm serving and working in this purpose. So, you know, balancing those three, making sure that it's conducive to my growth and what I can give to the community is going to be uh, extremely key in this process and my political journey.
2: Right, yeah. Well, certainly, um, you know, congratulations again. And, um, you know, if, would love to have you on, you know, in a month or two and to talk more about how things are going. And if there's anything that, um, you know, we can support you with and get the word out about, you know, please feel free to to let me know.
6: Absolutely. I'm so honored that you uh, decided to have me on this show. So I look forward to uh, working with you and seeing how I can help you as well in, um, in any area within you know promoting your blog talk um, show and um, getting more women like myself that you can interview and um, just spreading the word that women are here to lead and um, we're looking for supporters like you as well. So that would be great. Wow.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely drop your line about that. I would love to have other <laughs> other leaders on to talk about their work. Yes. <laughs> right. We have
6: to, I mean, we, we, we had a newly, right, we had a newly elected uh, woman in um, Oakland who, you know, mm-hmm. a woman hasn't sat in that seat for, I think they said 25 years. So for her to take that on, and we have the first black in Hayward. These are women that want to emerge. So at any time, mm-hmm. if you uh, want me to connect you with them, I'm sure they would be excited about it, um, because again, you're helping them build that their platform as well as yours. So just mm-hmm. definitely let me know what I can do.
2: Oh yeah, I definitely want to get connected. So what is what's the uh, who's the woman in Oakland, and what what is the position?
6: So she's a councilwoman in Oakland, and her name is mm-hmm. Trina Reed. I think she may have been on there on um, the mm-hmm. Vawapa event yesterday. Okay. I know her uh, photo was. And then um, mm-hmm. Angela Andrews is the first Black councilwoman in um, Hayward.
2: Wow, wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. When you so, said that you, um, you know, you applied for Emerge and you didn't get in the first time because it wasn't time and um my daughter's best friend um Sarah Henderson um is now um on the school board in Hayward and um and she told me to apply again cuz I did apply and I didn't get in and I'm thinking oh okay I think I might do that cuz you got yeah, in the second time
6: know exactly. Yeah exactly this process you know sometimes like you said it's it's not time but if you really mm-hmm. uh, feel that it's time now, and um, definitely let me know, and uh, we'll work together to see how we can achieve
2: that goal for you. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool, cool. Well, thank you so much for this great conversation, and and definitely yes, I am interested uh, in talking to some of your constituents about about their okay. um, you know their work and government, and um, yeah, it'd be great to have all of you on
6: that be Go back and forth. That will Go be, and be fun. And we'll make it happen. It will be exciting. <laughs> Just let us know. And I'll see what I can rally up. I'll rally the troops. <laughs> okay,
2: cool. That'll work. I will send you an invitation.
6: <laughs> All right. Sounds <That> good. <laughs> okay. Well, you, well, have, you have, have a good a rest day. of the
2: morning. Thank you. And have a happy you New well. Year celebration. Okay.
6: You well. Thank you.
2: Okay. Bye-bye. Sure. Bye. Peace and blessings. <laughs> Oh, good morning, uh, Shade. How are you?
7: I'm doing well. How are you?
2: Oh, I'm just so excited to be having this conversation with you, you know. Um <laughs> you introduced us to the cotton pickers, right? It's like, you know, who you know, like that's such a derogatory term, you know, the way it sort of come down the pipe, right? But it's you know, it's really a noble, you know, these folks, our ancestors made cotton picking, you know, into a noble act. Um, yeah. You know,
7: well,
1: and, I don't, I don't, yeah, but it was derogatory. hard, hard
2: work. Hmm?
7: Yeah. Hmm? And, and again, I, I don't see it as derogatory. I actually see it as a, as a true compliment. The thing is, is that we have to be careful, you know, who tells our story and who defines these terms mm-hmm. and how it is put upon us. And mm-hmm. you know, then how in turn we accept the definitions. So
2: yeah, so we could get into that today. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
2: yeah, I always I always thought it was so interesting your your last name, turnip seed. I'm like, you, you know, sounds like a farmer name, right? I mean,
4: exactly it is. it is. turnip but i didn't even know that you had anything you
2: connected the to world. the uh, agrarian culture when i when you were in oakland i didn't know that you know your roots went into the soil like that
7: well you know first and foremost i'm i'm from san francisco born and raised mm-hmm. in san francisco and then yeah right. went across the bridge and uh stayed in oakland for about 10 years um mm-hmm. before you know, moving around and now and then, where I, um, well, this isn't my last stop, but coming back <laughs> to where my parents are, are from. So both of my parents and all of my family are from Mississippi. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm here to help put Mississippi back on the map in a positive way the more I think about it,
2: you know. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't think Mississippi had a bad, you know, rap. Um, I, I have family in um, in Pearl River County, um, Mississippi, and and then um, I was born in New Orleans, and my father and mother and brother were as well. you know our family mm-hmm. went from Mississippi to New Orleans, and so they're there, mm-hmm. and as well as on the West Bank. But um, yeah, I mean, I, oh, yeah. I mean, I think oh, just think yeah. about that Mississippi River, and you know, the Mississippi River is the Nile River. You know, the Nile Valley River. You think about the Mississippi. Valley River you know it's like Hitting mm-hmm. all of that fertile fertile Land right you got the fertile crescent but We got like all that fertile mm-hmm. Land along that the longest river In the world you know Outside true, of the Nile true. River Second you know they're well, like running Neck and neck
7: <laughs> Well it's more I think It's comparable too To the West African uh, Niger River because it's Along mm-hmm. that cotton belt But, you know, I guess the same could be said Mm -hmm. about Egypt because Egypt, too, has got cotton, some of the best cotton in the world. But in in the western part of Africa, too, um, in Mali region and that whole area where the blues was evoked are really originated and was Mm -hmm. evoked again in the Mississippi um, Delta region and, and throughout the south. But yeah, Mississippi has a derogatory has has historically had a derogatory connotation because of its brutal uh, racism. But again,
2: you know, oh yeah, it's, it's yeah, Nina Simone, Mississippi, goddamn, right. Yes, Nina Simone,
7: tell you, Mississippi, <laughs> goddamn, and,
0: and I
2: mean every yeah. word of it. <laughs> 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 <My favorite song.
7: laughs>
0: yeah,
2: yeah Where I am.
7: Mm-hmm. Thank you for
2: that song Yeah, so What do you well, want let to, me okay, read, to talk about Let me read some okay. of your long bio It's it's such a nice story it's, This is your short one, too It's like, whoa <laughs> Wow <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me get started because it's, it's going to take a minute to to make my way through it. Um, <laughs> unless unless you want to, we could just talk it, we could talk through it if you want. Oh,
7: no, you go ahead and then we can talk about
2: it. Okay.
4: Uh,
2: All right. So you were born into a family of nine siblings with deep Mississippi roots, as you've already been telling us. Cassie Sade Turnipseed, you were the fourth child to be blessed by the union of Mr. Jim Theodore Turnipseed and Miss Mrs. Bonnie Lou Thompson Turnipseed. Both parents were born and raised in a small community called Choctaw County, Mississippi. Uh, Doctor Turnipseed is, however, a San Francisco, California native. What um, what neighborhood did you grow up in?
7: Initially, uh, we call it Dog pets. But that was down at the foothills of Potrero, you know, Potrero Hill. Yeah,
6: And so, yeah,
7: 22nd Tennessee, 22nd Tennessee, right off of 3rd Street. And then we moved from there to Hunters Point for about a year, and then from there to Bernal Heights, which is where uh, Mm -hmm. parents uh, stayed until they left the city and moved to Sacramento. So, yeah,
2: that was my
7: formative year.
2: (laughs) Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, because we came here from New Orleans and we lived in um, Fillmore for a little bit And then we moved to Sunnydale And so I grew up in um, in the Sunnydale Projects, um, Brookdale And then oh, okay. we uh, we moved, so I went to John McLaurin Elementary School And then we moved uh-huh. to Visitation Valley and I went to Visitation Valley Junior High And uh-huh. then uh, we moved to Ingleside, um, to uh, Granada mm-hmm. And and then I um I started going to Muhammad University and uh and then we moved down the street to Holloway and Granada and then I lived Muhammad? there until I moved to the East Muhammad? You said
7: Muhammad, Muhammad University?
2: University. Yeah, I, I grew up with the nation of Islam. Mhm. Okay. Okay. All right. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the temple, the mm-hmm. mosque was right there on Fillmore and Gary where the um mm-hmm. uh Bill Graham, you know, um has the um the concert hall presently.
0: The and religious Yeah. No Bill Graham
2: or the, Billy uh, Graham. The, Billy Graham. I mean okay, yeah, I know. It, the concert promo. Yeah, the con- right, yeah. exactly. Okay. And then um mm-hmm. and People's Temple was right there underneath. Um, the uh, mom. Yeah. And and now it's a post office. <laughs> it's
4: a
7: post office.
0: No, really. oh. I think it
2: became a post office. Yeah, nobody having no meetings down there.
7: <laughs> Girl, I haven't been down in that part in so long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Marcus Books was down the street. That's
4: uh, right.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um and you went to um San Francisco State, uh where you got a, a bachelor's degree in radio and television and mass communications. It's like wow, that's cool. And uh yeah, but before that, a,
7: it was let, mm-hmm. let me let me give credit to uh, my real stomping grounds San Francisco mm-hmm. City College and then okay. went to Laney College and then did, went to okay. Alameda College and I went to Mary really? College.
2: Wow, you made classes. your rounds. Wow.
7: I took classes at UC Berkeley and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I graduated from San Francisco State. But then, mm-hmm. um, uh, well, you keep reading, I'll explain as you go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then you got an MS degree in tele- telecommunications business and management and an MBA in international business and marketing management. From Golden Gate University in San Francisco sure. I'm like yeah. wow And yeah we haven't got to the Master's I mean the uh, PhD you have Now you've got a lot of education Like a Girl lot.
7: five degrees huh <laughs>
2: Yeah yeah because when I Met you that. you know you had your business Sade's um, You know um, You know Cafre, um, You know cultural center Where you sold mm-hmm. these beautiful African Garments, you know, that were imported, and you had mm-hmm. like live music, and then you had all the folks coming in, you know, uh, like Usman Simbin from mm-hmm. uh, from Senegal, you know, the father of African cinema. They would just like pop through your spot, and we could yeah, like Doctor
7: Clark, Clark, and I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, we we did we did a lot of work um, in the Bay Area. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was really a practicum for me. I I dropped out of MBA school, my master's program, for a minute to start Sade's Court. Uh, It was called Uh Sade's Court an Eclectic Boutique of African Designs and then opened up Popper Cultural Community Center uh, right Mm -hmm. next door to it. But all of that was a practicum as part of Mm -hmm. uh, the training and learning in the master's in business administration, I wanted to actually do it. You know, I didn't want to just read about it and hear about other people's methods. Um, I -hmm. thought it was more important for me to actually do it myself and and learn in the process, and so that's what I did. So I I dropped out for a couple of years and then went back and finished it up, Mm -hmm. and that was the reason why I shut down the stores because I needed to finish my (laughs) – my certification, oh. my my degree. And okay. um Yeah, and was, those were some fun good times. I you know. I I really mm-hmm. appreciate having uh that experience in the way that it was. It was great.
2: Mhm. Yeah, yeah, it was just you you were just so gracious and I forgot about, you know, the boutique next door to the community center space. Well, that was just, like, so nice, you having that big space, and you open it to mm-hmm. the community. And because I don't remember paying any money for anything, um, you know, unless I was buying some, you know, a, a garment or something or some other uh, item that that you had in your store. But, um, right. yeah, yeah, it was just really elegant and, and it was nice having a space there in Old Oakland because there weren't that many people of African descent with businesses. I mean, Alan Laird, you know, had expressions around the corner and then uh, Shakuru had her, her house to rent you know, around the corner. Well, both
7: of those and, you know, both of those were my space.
2: Um, oh,
7: Shik- Shakria, really? Yeah, Shakria. Yeah, I, I left and allowed Shakria to take over my lease. And Alan oh. Laird's space. Was Copray Community Center, and it was. next oh. door to it. Yeah, and so oh, it was. Okay. It was. Uh, yeah, no, it was the actual. Mm-hmm. He had came into my space. He sure did. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that was post Copray Community mm-hmm. Center when he came to, oh, yeah
2: okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that mm-hmm. was great that you know you were able. To, we were able to. You were able to like. It stayed in the community, literally.
7: <laughs> it did for a while, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember there was an article that was written uh, right after I left, and they recognized the work and were saying that um, the work that we were doing at Capre and Shadi's Court really opened the door to uh, this renaissance or this this uh, this. Um, I don't know awakening on Eighth and Washington, Eighth and Ninth and Tenth, going up to the hotel, and it was it, it was true. It was like a cultural renaissance, uh, rejuvenation of that area, and it has evolved now into something you know, pretty spectacular down there, where Rotto's is and all of the other restaurants and. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine what's happening now with COVID, but I do remember too the farmers market that started coming in so yeah, just amazing stuff. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, that's certainly true. Yeah. The only the only thing is, you know, like you had a you had a real um visible presence and um and and once you left <clears throat> uh, you know, it's it left. You know that presence, and then once um, once Alan and uh, Shakria, you know, left the area, that was it. I mean, there's there's a African store across the street. I think there are two. One, one is uh, West African, and the other I think is a Jamaican market. But mm-hmm. not quite the same kind of space because they're stores. They're not community centers, so it's mm-hmm. not the same kind mm-hmm. of kind of. Um, uh, Presence. Energy, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah, cause, you know people aren't coming through there. <laughs> it's just not that kind of space, right. you know, for you to right. stay a, a while and have a program per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
7: Oh, yeah. I remember people used to come on their lunch breaks and just to visit and be amongst the spirit of the ancestors because they had all these beautiful African carvings and chairs that people could sit in, like the king's chair and the queen's chair.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
7: You know, carved. And uh, people would literally take their lunch breaks and, you know, be in <laughs> these corporate environments and come and just sit in the chair <laughs> and just close their eyes and just want to be, you know, in that presence, in that energy and have it help to heal whatever the stresses are, are what's going on with them that day. So, yeah, you know, I always wanted to do That again, somewhere mm-hmm. you know, in some space, and I think uh, that's the energy that I brought to Mississippi with the intent of doing something similar and um, did open up another cultural space. But the acceptance or the understanding of what that was, or what that means, or the significance I say around. Mm-hmm. African art and appreciating it was just not at all the same. So, you know, this is the work, you know, the educational process of know thyself and, and, and understand your culture and your history. Um, it is very much appreciated in some of our communities, like in California, you know, Bay Area, L.A. But then there are so many other spaces and places that are truly void of that and have no understanding of what any and all of that means. And so, yeah, it's a challenge, you know, just um, educating or or recreating or, um, you know, trying to regenerate that same kind of acceptance um, in different places. And Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, you know, I think that, you know, just thinking about it, it's like, okay, that kind of stuff is preserved for the youth, (laughs) you know, because it takes so much energy and you really don't have a clue, you know, on um, the extent of the work, you know, while you're doing it, you know, you got this passion for it and you're healthy and you're up and you're, you know, you're young and you're gifted and you're black and, you know, you're just in it. And then, you know, maybe 20 years later, which is where I am now, it's or even 30 years later, actually, um, you know, you, you start to look at, you know, how easy it was before. And now, you know, you could do it, and you could do it on a dime. But it takes a lot, you know, to try to, uh, inform and 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 recruit and and encourage and inspire those around you. You know, and I think that's where you get weary and exhausted. It's just if if your environment isn't conducive to understanding that or learning that or wanting to accept that,
3: it wears you out faster. <laughs> the older
7: <only> you get.
0: <laughs>
2: Yeah. yeah, I was yeah, <clears throat> looking so. at your um your bio because we're still in the first paragraph. <laughs> we're not gonna be able okay. to talk about your other stuff because it's gonna take me a whole time to get through your your bio. We'll keep
0: going. We'll
1: you um,
2: through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um you know you were talking about um you know your cultural um you know sort of um art center in in Oakland and and when you relocated to Mississippi Delta in 2009 you you re- reestablished you know as you mentioned the Culture Arts program it it had a different kind of it lived differently in this particular space from what i'm reading yes. um it wasn't Oakland. um but um you know it, it got you the the uh attention of the um uh of the uh what is it the BB B. King Museum and Delta Interpretive okay. Center heard about you in your program, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the culture arts program as director of culture arts for Mississippi Action for Community Education in mm-hmm. Greenville. Right. So, like from Greenville, then they heard about you in this other place, uh, and in mm-hmm. India, Indianola, Indianola. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never heard of mm-hmm. Indianola. Indianola. Where no. is Indianola? Yeah,
7: this. Well, this is where I currently live, and it's BB it's King's oh.
2: hometown,
7: or at least this is where the museum is. His, old, okay. his hometown is the little town adjacent, uh, you know, up the road a little bit. But um, this is the town that claimed him and where he used to work and where mm-hmm. historic markers are placed and the museum. And the museum is amazing. And so I was part of that inaugural team of putting it together. So, yeah, I was the um, director of education and community outreach there, And again, some pretty phenomenal projects and programs happened as a result of uh, being involved with them, and then that's where I got the invitation to do the PhD in public history because Mm -hmm. museum development and all that is public history, and I had no idea what public history was, you know, but um, public historians what they do they're historians, but they not they don't just talk about it they, they be about it and what that mm-hmm. means is they build things like museums and historic parks and monuments and statues create um, community art projects anything that's gonna uh, give significance or or bring awareness to the significance of that particular place or uh, those particular people or whatever event that may have happened in that community. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we really need I I'm very passionate about that these days because this is these are reminders, you know, of the work that your ancestors, your great ancestors have done and hence the cotton, you know. And mm-hmm. uh I don't know if you want to keep going through that and then we can come back to the cotton because that, that truly is now my life's work, um, mm-hmm. building that out and, and, and making sure people understand the work that was committed and, and contributed and, and invested um, mm-hmm. with the sweat equity of Grandma Manil. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. you're gonna recognize it and you're gonna respect it. If, if, if I got anything to say about
1: it, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm.
2: so, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could um, we we could uh, we could start talking about it. Uh, I just wanted to mention that, you know, not only you know, did you um because of your work, uh, in Indianola, and uh, prior to that Greenville, you know, so you got this this full scholarship, you know. In a doctoral program at Middle Tennessee State University, where you are the second African American woman to receive a doctorate in history um, since yes. this institution's inception, and it's is an old institution, 1911. Yeah. So, that, so, 1911. so you know, like that's mm-hmm. a long time to just be the, to be the second person. Like, whoa! And, and
7: and the first person got hers three years before I got mine.
2: Yeah. Oh, man. So, really? That's. Yeah, yeah. Dang. Mm-hmm.
7: Wow. <laughs> I well, they should be
2: giving a lot of people scholarships. Shoot. <laughs> exactly.
7: Exactly. And so now the table has turned a little bit, you know, where I think there may be about six or seven uh, women, uh, black women, who mm-hmm. have received a PhD since, uh, well, all together, I would say. And I got mine in 2016, so that was just four years ago. So now they're trying to pump them out, you know, every year at least one. <laughs> okay, well, shoot, hook me
2: so. up. <laughs> yeah, now they're, I can now say they now they're do that. Doing, you that. Know, yeah, yeah, I would love to get a doctorate in public history and build something, mm-hmm. you know, for the ancestors.
4: Mm-hmm. That sounds mm-hmm. excellent.
2: Yeah, so like excellent. I was telling you, that your presentation – uh, about, you know, that museum, it just looks so awesome and and the um <clears throat> the sculptor that, you know, sort of did the um the piece that um mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. remember who you gave it to and I don't remember his name, but he actually was here. I think he was um featured at Joyce Gordon Gallery. I think she um he did a solo um exhibit there at her her place. You're talking about Andrew White. Yeah, is he the one that is he the one that did the uh the sculpted children at the Whitney Museum in uh in Louisiana, the um the slave um plantation uh that was made into a museum?
7: I don't think so, but I'm not sure. I can't
2: say for sure.
7: But he okay. is the most prolific uh sculptor and monument developer in the country as it relates to African American History and culture. So, right. he gets those projects. He gets all of those big projects, and and mm-hmm. um, yeah, his resume is long. He's done maybe now about 130 different
2: ones, but I don't mm-hmm. recall
7: that being a part of one in his portfolio. Yeah, I'll,
2: I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll look mm-hmm. it up um, and see who, mm-hmm. who who the sculptor is. I did it because this particular um, plantation museum is unique in that. It focuses on the children. Like, what happened to the children,
4: you yeah. know, during enslavement?
2: Like, you know, we hear about the yeah. grown people, uh, but we don't yeah. hear a lot about what it was like for these little ones, you know. You know, um,
7: that has been my concern as well, and I thought very deeply and um, well, empathetically about that because when you think about one of the one of the points that was raised in my studies uh, by Dr. Lewis Woods being in his class, he raised the point that we as African people in this country have gone through 17 generations, 17 to 18 generations now, of having to sit and watch our parents, our mothers in particular, you know, coddle and nurture and and sing songs to these little white babies who would also suckle from their breasts well we basically had to sit down and shut up because they say it so right and you're sitting wherever you're sitting um and watching your mother the most precious person in the world to you give so much love and attention to this other child that happens to be a white child um always <laughs> and 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 when you think about like the movie the help where, oh, you're yeah. so kind, you're so wonderful, you're so important. And yet by the time Mama got through cleaning and cooking and being assaulted by, you know, these these white folks and, and having to nurture and feed and clean and take care of these babies, and then by the time she gets home, she's tired. She's She's only human. And so Mm -hmm. you're looking at her as she takes all this time with them. And by the time she gets to you, she ain't got none. And you got to sit down and shut up because she says so. And then you couple that with a white Jesus, you know, then you start thinking about how and why so many of us have basically spun out of control, lost our minds, just crazy on so many levels uh, when it comes to whiteness and the acceptance of wanting to nurture them and take care of them and, you know, all that. Because that's what we were trained to do for over 17 generations. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, how do we come out of that, you know, of that indoctrination that white is supreme, that the supremacy thing, uh, we find ourselves being complicit in it because that's kind of what we saw for a long time that that was you know they closer to God Heck, look at Jesus you know and and Mm -hmm. on and on and they're running things everything so they're smarter than us they got all the best houses they got the money they got the best jobs they got the new trucks they got you know on and on and on until you know people like me ain't accepting that you know people like you ain't but there is that underpinning in our in in this american society that forces so many of us who are not say entrepreneurial in spirit and in mind and independent thinking and and you know have that self-determination to just push past all that but those who are assimilated into this Idea of capitalism and Western societies, and on and on, you know, lose so much of our indigenous selves, our true African spirit, and adapt to this this whole idea of of white supremacy, because we, as children, were trained that way, to think that way, to to respond that way, because that's what our parents had to do to survive. You know? mm-hmm. And so many of our children did never, never, never had a true childhood, and especially when you look at the cotton pickers, You know, they were riding on the back of the cotton sacks along with their mamas, you know, either on the backs of their mothers as infant children or riding on the cotton sacks as they were filling them up with cotton. And they had their own little cotton sacks, you know, by the time they two, three years old sometimes. You know, there's images of them picking cotton at that age. So you did that. That's what you did in your childhood. You played in the cotton fields all day, every day. That's all
0: you did. Right.
2: Well, you know, um, remember um, Representative um, John Lewis, you know, he he spoke a lot about how his brothers and sisters told him that, you know, cotton, he wasn't going to you know, be a good cotton picker. You know, he just, he was not, that was not something he was going to be able to master. And he said how he wanted to get an education because he definitely didn't want to make picking cotton his way of making a livelihood. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you hear about how how hard it was, you know, to make sure you got the cotton out of the, you know, the center of, you know, the flower because you can mm-hmm. get you cut up your hands
7: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh yeah
7: You know I went out there one day um, For more or less A photo shoot uh, One of my girlfriends there Is a reenactor So she goes out and she has like a theater company And they staged it in the cotton field So I you know dressed up too And went out there with them And you know honey had on my My gloves and had a and scissors, <laughs> I'm going to pick cotton, right, with gloves and scissors. Be <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, girl, you better get out of here. You got to bleed. You know, in order to really do this thing called picking cotton, it requires mm-hmm. you to bleed because of the way, like you're saying, those thorny, very sharp thorny Bristle mm-hmm. that holds the cotton and together to hold when it opens. It's, it's sharp. And when you're picking and you're picking really fast and stuff, your hands come out and you all cut up blood all in the cotton. And mm-hmm. yeah, so it was painful on top of exhausting, hard, back breaking, bending over all day. Ugh. Oh. Ugh. Oh. It's horrific when you, you really stop and think about how our people had to work like that from kin to kink, and that's from kinsey in the morning to kink at night. So, you know, they're out there at, at, early in the morning before the sun even rises, waiting on the sun to rise, and then when the sun is completely dark, or when the day is dark and done, they're still out there, especially if it's a full moon because they could still mm-hmm. see, right? Um, right. Man, you know, and you put in all that labor. And one of the things that I learned in business school, there's a thing called sweat equity and sweat equity mm-hmm. investment, which means that you are putting stake or buying stock or, you know, investing in uh, an experience, an experiment, uh, uh, whatever this thing of what we call America and you have ownership here that there has not been any return on that investment really and so that's what reparations are about that's what retribution is all about so the return on investment is still to be determined as far as I'm concerned on you know how that rolls out what do we want you know what, and, and that's on us at this point. I think we need to have definition and give definition to what reparations really looks like, you know, how it should roll out into our communities, uh, whether it should be some sort of cash settlement or education or tax-free existence, uh, living here with whatever education you want to pursue, free medical care, whatever. We need to put definition on what is that return on the investment that grandmama made with all that sweat, not only sweat, the blood, the tears, all of the things that uh, we've had to suffer and go through here in the building of America. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and see, the thing about cotton, cotton was and still is now the fabric of our lives. And for 200 years it was the number one investment, our our, um, products, our commercial um, um, industry. And all of the profits that were made by cotton production, marketing, the textiles industry and all that, it it equated, it was beyond measure. All of the the profits that were made in cotton – it It's out um that did all of the other industries in this country for nearly two hundred years. I'm sorry, I don't know if you hear the beeping, but there's a beeping on my phone, and so no, all profits no, combined didn't equate okay, good. All profits combined didn't equate to the profits that were being made in cotton, and again, for two hundred years. Now, you can't even imagine what kind of money are we talking about? We're talking about the money that built this country. Okay, we're talking about how and why white folks got trust fund accounts is because when Wall Street was developed, it was developed around cotton and slavery, people who are going to go out and work, you know, in these fields and stuff. And so that was the way to keep account and a measure for who's going out, who's buying and selling, and that whole stock market exchange thing was developed around cotton and our labor. Okay, so mm-hmm. developing out for you know early in the 20th century even, and 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 beyond, it was all businessmen in New York had some interest in cotton, and and there was no exception. It was like all the businessmen had some interest or stake in cotton, whether it was insurance. Our banking, our shipping, our textile manufacturing, our marketing, our, you know, buying and selling, that whole thing was centered on how are we going to distribute King Cotton. And to the point that even Britain and and France, you know, were so involved with this industry that, Manchester, England became the first industrialized city in the world based on cotton. And that southern-picked cotton that was transported and shipped out to Britain. So Manchester, England became a city called Cottonopolis. It was the cotton capital. How in the Hmm. world is it the cotton capital when no cotton is even raised or grown there? No, it all was imported from the southern part of America. That was the reason why the Civil War was fought. Oh, man, we can go deep into that. That was the reason why Britain, you know, when the sun never set on the British Empire, was because of their colonization around cotton and building out textile industries everywhere they went. In Africa, throughout India, throughout all of the Asian countries and stuff, you know, they were taking over their textile industries, and which was the reason for their colonization. The Queen herself had the largest plantation in in the Mississippi Delta, which became the Cotton Kingdom. The British Queen owned the plantation that's now owned by Monsanto,
5: but it, right
7: outside of Greenville, Mississippi. It was the largest plantation here in the South. And so then you start putting it all together. This is how all these white folks made their money, is on the back of us picking that damn cotton, okay? And then from there they roll out into all these other investments and opportunities and industries and blah, 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 and how like I could say these trust fund accounts were established for generations to come, i. e. Trump and everybody else. You know. So you got these this whole segment and and, and social class whose children don't have to worry about what school and how they're going to pay for the school they want to go to. How what trip they want to take this year? What business they want to open up? Where we want to experiment today? You know, you got the money to play with. You go broke ten, fifteen times, Trump, and still roll out and do something else and and be on top of the world and become president. I mean, you know, it's it's unbelievable how. The transference of money and power all, again, stems right back to the main pillar, the main economic driver for this country, it was cotton. And before cotton, it was sugar, it was tobacco, it was rice. When you get into the the Gullah Geechee territories in in the Carolinas Mm -hmm. and Georgia. And so we are old. You know, and that's bottom line. And you know, how dare they even want to resist or or have any hesitancy about just making the accounting right? You know, just just leveling it out, just paying your debt. Do do what we need to do on that. But we, as African people, need to define what that is. You know, how do we want to? be received in this way? How, how do, what is, what is our, our push, our drive, our, our message, our, our, our desire for what that return on investment should be? We've got to be very clear about that. And so for what I'm doing with uh, Mississippi Valley State University students and Jackson State University students who I teach, history, you know, we're doing public history, we're, we're creating projects and programs and, and monuments We just unveiled uh, Fannie Lou Hamer's marker where she took her historic stance, who, too, was a cotton picker, who, too, you know, managed uh, the, the money and, and the time and all that in the cotton fields with, with black folks on these plantations, but, of course, raised to become one of the fiercest fighters, you know, that we know when it comes to voting rights and getting full citizenship in this country. So we did the unveiling of a marker on her birthday this year, uh, October the 6th in um, Indianola, Mississippi, in Sunflower County, on the courthouse steps where she went and stood and, you know, then became target for the beatings that she received, all in an effort to make sure that we as black women specifically and black men too were able to vote, okay? So the Voting Rights Act and the Voting Rights um, yeah, Act that Johnson signed was hugely because of Fannie Lou Hamer's work. But, yet, when I came here um, almost 10 years ago now, you look around and there's no sign of her or that effort and that movement. And so we finally, on her 103rd birthday, got a marker put in place, and this was designed and developed by um, the students at Mississippi Valley State University. And so that was, that's the first in the series of markers that we intend to do, but the biggest one and the main one is a statue that Ed Dwight has sculpted and created of a man, a woman, and a child holding cotton sacks and looking up to the left for a brighter day, so they're looking up to the sky, more or less, and, and looking for that brighter day. We're wanting to make that into a thirty-foot-high monument statue um, on the fields of this cotton uh, plantation, one that on somebody plantation. Uh, but at this point, we have chosen Valley uh, Campus because it too was a cotton plot. You know, that's where our, our people worked in picked Cotton, too. So it grew into a university and the youngest historically black university in the country. So we are in negotiations now with um, getting the rights to bring this monument to that campus. Uh, so that is a way, you know, to show that's one of the ways we can show that we, as African people appreciate the dignity and the effort and the labor and the time and the all of that commitment to making cotton king. And because when we show up, we show out, and everything we do, we're going to do it better than anybody else. And so this is one way of showing our children and our youth that, yeah, even as cotton pickers, baby, we were able to rise up and build this country and give the financial resources to, the, to this experiment, and we need to be honored for that. Whether or not we have yet received the capital, the financial rewards of it, we at least have received a historic site or a monument or uh, a, a sign, a symbol that says we respect you. We respect the labor we expect all of the the intentional work that you did in developing this country. And it starts with us again defining how respect for our people looks. You know, what 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 do we think we need to see for our own betterment and self esteem and that pushing forward and to demonstrate to our children and the rest of the world this is how you go respect us. This is how you're going to show us that you appreciate what we have given you. And, again, whether it's it's the financial effort or not, we we at least need to have some symbol, some sign, some banner, some statue, some historic site, some monument and museum that acknowledges and interpreted in our own language the work. That we have invested in this country, and it's like, how dare us not even recognize that that needs to be done? But I think, again, going through the effort of becoming a public historian, you 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 wake up to that. You know, you understand the significance of that, and it's a very subtle thing, but yes, it's very very impactful, and it resonates throughout the whole community, when you put in place something that says we respect you, we respect these people, we respect the work that they have done, we respect their efforts, their contribution. And, and again, we, like Farrakhan said, if you ain't learned by now, you don't need no more school because they ain't going to do it. You need to do it. That's your job. That's our job to do that. And make them like
2: it.
7: Well <laughs> <So> anyway. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: that's
2: <not> <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to let you know that the um uh the artist, the sculptor, um at the uh Whitney Plantation Museum, his name was um, Woodrow. <clears throat> uh, Woodrow or, uh, let's see I'm trying to think. Oh darn. Um but anyway, different different person, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, yeah, like you were saying. So um, in our closing moments, um, you um, you have a couple of um, publications that you are working on because you've been giving these conferences. Really, mm-hmm. they sounded like wow, really awesome conferences, and and then you are publishing. I guess the papers that were presented at these conferences—you've got the uh, the Geechee mm-hmm. people making a way out of nowhere, and then you've got mm-hmm. up from the cotton fields revisited um, mm-hmm. from from those conferences that you've been hosting, and, and then you mm-hmm. have um, you have another one, um, field hollers and freedom songs. No, that's your mm-hmm. no, that was your symposium that, that just happened mm-hmm. this year. Um, that no, was that was.
7: That's the that when we actually have coming out. Yeah, that's the one that's oh, coming out. Okay. It's one of the conferences. I think we did that in our um seventh no. Yeah, seventh or sixth or seventh year. I can't remember which, mm-hmm. but um the Field Hollers and Freedom Song is it should I'm um, editing the final index and all that. It's a lot of work, man. <laughs> so, so yeah, look for that book to come out in the next couple of uh, months. But the, yeah, okay. the symposiums um, were amazing, and we did them for eight years. And this particular year, because of COVID, it was it was canceled. But we did do the unveiling for Fannie Lou Hamer in its stead. So hopefully next year we'll be back on track with that. But it was called Sweat Equity Investment in the Cotton Kingdom Symposium. And so every year we just picked up an, another theme. It went from everything from quilts, which was amazing. That, that particular conference is probably one of my favorite because it dealt with the quilting and, and the art of quilting and the messages that were embedded in the quilting for, uh, for the runaways, you know, people who ran away from slavery and to freedom and how the maps were embedded and depicted inside of the quilt. You know, you had to just follow the map in the quilt. And, um, it, and too, all of it's just hinging on the narrative of Cotton. And then our last one um, was about the Gullah Geechee narrative, which, again, is so significant and we know so little about What that is, you know, the culture of the Gullah Geechee people, James Brown, uh, in fact, Michelle Obama and her grandfather, in fact, and Clarence Thomas. All these people are Gullah people, and they're from that region, which is South Carolina through Georgia, actually at the foot of North Carolina, but it goes from supposedly from Jacksonville, um, North Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida, the Jacksonville people, didn't really um, remember that history but the more you get down into South Carolina uh, that's where again the people got off the boat who were enslaved and so half of the enslaved Africans that came here came through Charleston South Carolina and the others up in Virginia but there is where that was the original Cotton Kingdom, number one. That is where rice and tobacco and indigo was grown. Again, these are the four pillars of the American economy, tobacco, rice, uh, indigo, and sugar, and, and and then cotton. But anyway, um, telling that story in the conference was so very special. I think it was the best one. Our last one was the best one. And they're the ones who held on to the African culture more than anybody else in, in this country. And still today, you know, they, they have the essence of who they be. You know, they understand who they be. They understand that the world, or white folks in particular, dance to our music. And that whole self-determination spirit lives, has lived a long life within the Gullah Geechee um, culture and community and how we all be goa honey. And we just kind of went from there and distribute with, distributed, redistributed from, from there. And it was based on your skill set. What kind of skills did you have is how you got sent to different parts of this country or throughout the South. And, girl, it's just such an amazing story. And, again, we're not teaching our children these things and for me, um my whole purpose in going was to try to develop and establish a a book, a curriculum around um uh that narrative, especially in higher education for our historically black universities. We need to we need to learn these this history. Um mm-hmm. nothing is more important than know thyself <laughs> you know. And that is uh definitely a part of the african American
2: or the American uh narrative. <laughs> wow, that's a lot, but you know you are a scholar, and you've been working on this for a minute a lot of minutes um so tell our audience how they can help you um finish this museum, and uh yeah, how much money does it cost like what's the projection? And, and give them their web, website and any any other ways that they can reach you to help you raise the money to be able to make this beautiful illustration a reality.
7: Well, my direct line, my cell phone number is 662-347-8198. My website for this monument project, a very monumental project, is cottonpickers.com u s and that's cotton pickers plural u dot u s and and if you just want to send an email it's info at core inc dot org and that's info at k h a f r e i n c dot org and we have developed uh, our our strategic plan and business plan model and whole deal, and the whole idea is to link together the entire uh, cotton kingdom, which stems from South Carolina uh, to Texas, really, and... So, you know, it will be these many monuments, our house museums, shotgun house museums that are strung in along, but then it all centers and points to the main monument. And all of this will cost only $26 million. And so I know there are so many people out there in your listening audience who can just simply write that check and let's get it going. Okay. And, you know, one of the beautiful things is that this has been embraced by our everybody that we've talked to, every single person that we've talked to, everybody said, oh, yes, let's do that. Maya Angelou, mm-hmm. Dr. Maya Angelou was our In All World Chair, our Honorary Chair, and then when she uh, passed away, B.B. King became the Honorary um, Chair, and now it's Bobby Rush, the blues singer. And uh, Maya wrote this beautiful mandate for us, a poem uh, that really spoke to the charge, and so, you know, we've we've got these many monuments that we've sent to everyone from President Obama that we hope to see it again mm. in his presidential library, and um Clifford Talbert who is our spokesperson and Ed White. I mean everybody all of the politicians are evolving around that. We just haven't really launched the um fundraising campaign yet and and primarily because you know, we, we need to reestablish the board at this time. And so that's what we're looking for is new board members. So if anybody out there who would like to be a part of um, helping us to raise the money and and just push through on its building, um, please do. Give me a call or send me an email or check out the website, Um You know, we just at this point need your blessings and your prayers and, 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 yeah, and your money. And we are a 501c3 Mississippi Delta-based nonprofit organization and have been that since 2009 at this point. So, yeah, I look forward to any and all love and blessings and, and, you know, just prayers uh, for our success. Because it's all about Grandmama and them, it's all about honoring them in a way that gives dignity to their legacy and to their hope and promise for us to be who we are today.
2: mhm, yeah, certainly certainly yeah well it's it's a really noble project, and um yeah, definitely looking forward to hearing that you have broken the ground, you know, and it's going up. <laughs> Because um,
0: yeah, yeah
2: twenty six million is not that much, and everybody's no, saving money now. Because we're not we're not going anywhere, so we're not spending as much money. So um, That's right. Yeah. So if uh, people could just send you their savings, like, okay. Well, I'm not <laughs> buying this. Let me send it to the project. Yeah. <laughs> be, yeah. Yeah. Mhm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and then and, and then lastly, good. I was wondering if we could maybe end with a story about your dad and his relationship to Cotton. Ah. Ah.
7: Well, how this whole thing started was because I had been here in the Delta uh, for a couple of years and went home one year and uh, he was living in Sacramento. My mom and dad were living in Sacramento at that time. And so I thought I was, Bring him a gift from the Delta, which was a bulb of cotton. You know, on a and and so you know, I thought it was beautiful because I'm just I'm just so interested in this thing called cotton. It's just that's how blues was. He evoked the whole thing. He loves blues, he loves BB, he does that. And so I just thought that this would just be a good little gift for him. And so I put it in his hand. And by the time he had lost his eyesight um, due to diabetes, so he really he didn't see it. You know, he saw me coming towards him. He could see my shadow or whatever or outline. Uh, and my mother saw it, and she was standing on the other side of the room, and she just standing there shaking her head. She said, "Like what?"
0: <laughs> and then so when I put the
7: <laughs> when I put the cotton gold in his hand, he was trying to figure out. What is this? I said, Daddy, you don't know what that is? He's like, no. And he said, is this a sock? You done brought me a sock, a handkerchief? What is this? And I said, Daddy, that's cotton. And as soon as I said the word cotton, he screamed. Mm. He cursed. Mm. He threw it to the ceiling. And he looked Mm. at me and he said, don't you ever put that, S-H-I-T, in my hands again, and I was shocked, and I was like, oh, my God, what did I just do? It hurt my feelings, because he doesn't cuss, and he definitely has never cussed at me like that, and so my mother was standing on, she said, that child, she just don't understand, and I said, understand what? And they just just couldn't even talk about it. So I just wanted to understand what in the world, what happened with you and cotton, uh, with black folk and cotton? And why are you so traumatized still to this day? And they left Mississippi saying we ain't never going to touch that SHIT again. And then I put it in his hands. And that's just like, oh, my God. So that was the genesis, that was the reason, that's the why I had to find out. Why are our people so traumatized about cotton? Nobody talks about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's too painful. And, again, that's how blues was evoked, was trying to soothe their weary selves from that work, you know, and that experience. They had to come up with something that was going to heal them and and protect them from going insane or whatever could happen as a result of that kind of abuse. And so in that discovery, hence this monument project and, and the, my whole Ph.D. dissertation is about this and, and the development of some kind of historical site, some sort of physical presence that honors that legacy. And I think that that's when our ancestors will really, you know, rest (laughs) in a way that they've never rested before. And, in fact, it was me and and my partner uh, driving down the road one day when I asked him, what is that? You know, in these cotton fields, it was like this little spirits jumping, and and it, it was really heat waves, but it looked like spirits out there over the cotton fields. And then he told me, he said, oh, we call those jumping monkeys. And I'm like, jumping monkeys? He said, yeah, it's like they jump around. It's like heat waves, but they look like jumping monkeys. And then I swear to God, at that point, it was like something jumped on my back. One of them monkeys jumped on my back. And I and I said we gotta build a monument. So with my father, and then and then and then my my partner Robert Terrell at that time, explaining what this spirit is, what this energy is, what the history and legacy is with those cotton fields. It's like that's where we need to put a monument, and. Mm-hmm. I, we have to do it. This is this is just we just have to do it. It's 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 my life's work. Now you know I, I can't do anything until you know it's like this has to get done. Mhm.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and what was so beautiful about your presentation a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, were were the photographs and the dignity of you know our ancestors, you know, bent over that pop that that um. Cotton. I almost say like popcorn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mhm. Right. Yes. Yeah. Real. Really. Yeah. Really great work. Because you know when we call some, you know, some people, you know, we don't know their names. So we call people's names. We honor their their work. Then they live, and and then their souls really can rest in peace. So it's really yeah. really important work that you're doing, and you know sort of. Uh, paying attention to um, to the work that our ancestors did um, and, and the dignity they brought to the work, uh, even though they were looked at as inhuman, right?
7: But we never did. I mean, that's what no. they chose to do. That's what white folks chose to do, but we're not honoring that. We're not even going to. You know, I'm I'm at that point where I'm just really wanting and needing to change the narrative. Period. You know, mm-hmm. so, so we're not even acknowledging what they felt and what they thought and how they looked at us. No, no, and all no, what that. I, no.
2: What I what yeah. I was saying is that our ancestors they mm-hmm. did not acknowledge, you know, those kind of projections. Like they they right. knew that they were they were human beings,
6: and exactly. and.
2: And and behaved, you know, sort of in a way that, you know, the the you know slave masters, you know, the enslavers, um, put them to shame, you know, you know, with their their way of behaving, you know, sort of, our ancestors gave the best example of what it means to be a human being. Um,
1: oh, absolutely,
7: yeah. absolutely.
2: Absolutely.
7: And so those are, again, those are the narratives that we need to choose to teach our people and everyone else that we know who we are, you know, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or feels mm-hmm. in, in, in that negative regard. This is something we need to be very um, deliberate about and mm-hmm. intentional about and just push through and do what we know we came here to do, and that is to preserve and protect humaneness in the human family. We're the original parents, right? So that's Mm -hmm. our responsibility, and it's a heavy one. And we can't walk away and, and neglect or deny that role, and it is essential to human survival, is for us to function in that capacity as the original people, who must protect Mm -hmm. and preserve, you know, the the legacy of us all, but then definitely the dignity and the humanity and the humaneness Mm -hmm. of our being. Mm
2: -hmm. Definitely, yeah. Well, it was great catching up. (laughs) And we'll have to do this again so we don't have to talk so long. Yeah, but it was um uh, right right because so how long Ooh. has it been since we've had a conversation like how many I double digits years right?
7: Goodness. It's so good to talk to you, Rhonda, and it was so good to uh, see you the other day on uh, mm-hmm. at at my my presentation my Zoom talk. Yes.
2: <laughs> right, but, right. Um, it was excellent. Yeah, yeah. You're doing mm-hmm. some really important work with, you know, the uh, the public his the public historian. You know, yeah. Yeah, you need finally public
7: found, mm-hmm. I finally found my true niche. <laughs> yes,
2: yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it feels
7: good. It feels good.
2: <laughs> right, yeah. Well, you take good care, and uh, we'll definitely stay in touch, and I'm looking forward to finding out if I can get a scholarship to your to your alma mater.
7: Yeah,
2: so let's talk offline, and I will okay. be up with folks, you know. All
7: and right. um, cool. Yeah, and, and um, you're going to also hook me up with some other folks, but then let's, let's talk offline and okay. keep it going. So good All to right. next <laughs>
2: Yes, definitely, definitely. You take good care. <laughs> I will, you
7: too. Peace and blessings. Right, peace and blessings. You. <laughs> okay.